The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray together. Father, all must be well indeed. Thank you for this church, for another opportunity to come together and to worship, to see more of who you are, to look into your word. God, I ask that you would, that you would use these next moments to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to move us forward in the faith. Would you use it to glorify Christ, please? It's in his name we ask it. Amen. If you would, please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 7 through 10. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, it reads as follows. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, because my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm keenly aware this morning that there's probably going to be some of us here that this text might sound perhaps disconnected from reality in some ways like something that's not really possible. And you especially might feel this way if you're in the middle of going through something right now, some kind of battle or some kind of struggle or suffering through some kind of loss or an extended dark season in life that you're navigating through right now. And so I want to say this morning first that if that's you and that's the way you feel, that's okay. That's okay. But I also want to say that even though this understandably might sound impossible in light of what you might be going through right now, in reality, it's no more impossible than any other part of your Christian walk. So think about this. 
Without God's enabling grace, you wouldn't be able to believe unto salvation or to love God or to persevere or to turn from sin or any other foundational part of your Christian walk. Without the grace of God in Christ meeting you and enabling you to feel and to do these things, you wouldn't be able to perform any of it. And so I want to suggest then that just as grace meets you there in the more foundational parts of your faith and makes that possible, grace can meet you here too and make this possible. That's really the focus of the whole passage, I think. It's, it's about God's enabling grace. And I don't know if you noticed, but out of what we read, there wasn't a single imperative, not one command. And that's because I think the passage serves as an invitation of sorts for God's children. It's not meant to put an added burden on top of what we're already going through, something we need to perform that's extra. And so I hope you feel that this morning. I hope that I'm faithful to that this morning. But what's the passage inviting us to? Let's look at it. In in verse 10, Paul says, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. And it's not content like the way we sometimes use it. Like I really wanted Red Lobster tonight, but I will be happy with meatloaf, I guess. I'll, I'll get by. It'll be okay. I'm content with this. The word's communicating the idea of joy. And so your translation might say, I am well content or pleased or delighted or glad in weaknesses, insults, etc., This is the same word used by God the Father when he spoke over Christ saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's that's the same word Paul is using here, the well pleased. And what are the things that he's well pleased in, these weaknesses and insults and hardships? They serve as a summary list of all of the suffering in his ministry as an apostle of God. So he he would literally be saying, I am well pleased with all of my suffering. Not in in spite of it, but actually with it, in it. It's very much like what he says in Romans 5.4 when he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. And Paul knows a thing or two about suffering. It's, it's marked his whole ministry. It's described in detail in several of his letters. In this very epistle, you can read about some of it in chapter 1 or chapter 6 or chapter 11. Or you can go to 1 Corinthians and read about it in chapter 4. Or you can read about how it's laid out in Philippians chapter 3. This was the declaration over his entire ministry from day 1 When Christ says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
In fact, some scholars have even nicknamed Paul the suffering apostle. And yet, even still, Paul says, I'm well pleased in all of it. And that just seems impossible on many levels, to feel that way, genuinely. And I also think it's important to say here as a side note that Paul is not some kind of masochist, like saying, hey, you remember that time when that mob surrounded me and stoned me and that stone hit me right here in the face? That was like wonderful. I loved the way that felt. Can I have another one of those pleas? It was, it was well-pleasing to me. It's not what he's saying, but it's that there's something here that he's discovered, something that brings all of his painful experiences in life a purpose and therefore a meaning and therefore value. And that value for Paul outweighs the hatred of the pain itself, making it well worth it to him. And I want to know what he's discovered this morning. So, with the time that we have, I'm going to ask three questions of the text to try to understand how it's possible that Paul could feel like this. So, question number one that I'm going to ask is, what's Paul's situation? This story of the thorn that he's telling us, this happened very early on in his ministry, before most, if not all, of the suffering And it it served as like a watershed moment for Paul through which he would learn how to understand and process the things that he was going to go through. So I want to understand the situation, what it means for him and for what it means for us. Second question I want to ask of the text is, what does Christ mean when he says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness? Sounds paradoxical, so I want to know what it really means for Paul and for us. And then lastly, question number three, why does Paul respond the way that he does to Christ's answer to him? I'm well pleased in suffering. Why does he respond that way to it? Because there's a lot of ways you could respond to that statement from Christ. So three very basic questions of the text. What's Paul's situation? What's Christ's answer to him? And why does he respond the way that he does? So question number one, what's Paul's situation here? Again, this is very early in his ministry. And he says in verse 7 that he's been receiving what he calls surpassingly great revelations and visions. Above this, uh, starting around verse 2, he talks about these visions, visions of heaven itself, And that these revelations, that he wasn't even allowed to repeat them. And either immediately after or shortly after these exalted visions and revelations, Paul is struck by what he describes as the giving of a thorn in his flesh. A harassing messenger of Satan. And a lot of ink has been spilled trying to understand what this thorn is. But the truth is we don't know because Paul doesn't actually tell us. And there's not enough information or clues in the passage or in the rest of the Bible, for that matter, for a conclusive case. So we're left to conjecture on it. 
Some theories are stronger than others. I have my own theories. But it's okay if we don't know, because if it was really necessary for us to know, to understand what Paul is saying here, he would have told us. So what's important to know about the thorn is this, that Paul, a Christian of Christians, an apostle of apostles, despite his face-to-face connection with the risen Christ, he still tormented and brought low by this thorn, even to the point of crying out to God over and over, asking God to take it away. Three times, he says, I pleaded with God in verse 8. That's what's important to see about the thorn, what's most important. And this image of, of a tormented Paul who is perfectly in God's will for his life. That's an important thing to see here. A tormented apostle perfectly in God's will for his life. That image is helpful for us. Once we've sat in ongoing hardship or trial for a significant period of time, the heart and the mind, they can do funny things and they can start to wonder, even if we never vocalize it. Maybe it's just something even on a subconscious level that's happening. But we can start to question God's love for us or we can start to question his care over us. Why is this happening? What did I do? Are you punishing me? Is that what's happening? And if not, why is this here? If you love me like you say you love me, then why won't you make it stop even though I'm asking and asking and asking? Are you even there? Because it feels like you're not even listening to me anymore. I just want to say, if you are a Christian, no matter what you are facing or how long you've actually been facing it, you are loved by God. You've not been forgotten by Him. You've not been abandoned by Him. You're not being punished under his anger or his wrath either. You are his child. You are and forever will be the apple of his eye because Christ is the apple of his eye and you are in Christ. And nothing changes that. Nothing can take that away for you, from you. So as much as you're able Preach back to yourself when those thoughts or emotions rise. Preach back to yourself that even great men of God, like the Apostle Paul, suffered in this life. And he was still deeply loved by God. And so are you. I think it's worth mentioning as well that Paul was not ashamed before God of his grief under the thorn. 
It's not uncommon either to sometimes feel an unnecessary added guilt over our mourning or our sorrowing or just over our overall lack of joy. Because on some level, again, maybe even just subconsciously, what we think we can think it's wrong to feel that way in light of everything that we have in Christ. It's like we can feel guilty for not rejoicing the way we think we ought to be rejoicing in life. It's just like the cherry on the cake. Not only am I a mess right now, and I feel horrible, but I feel horrible for feeling horrible that I'm a mess, and now I feel even more horrible. So hear me, please. When Paul says he is well-pleased in suffering, he is not saying no to appropriate sadness in the hardships of life. The Bible is it's intimately acquainted with human sorrow. Just consider King David who wrote psalm after psalm about how in spite of God's promises over him, he filled his pillow with tears over the pain and the confusion and the strife in his life and the seeming absence of God at times. And those psalms, they're an example to us of good, acceptable, godly sorrow and petitioning in hard times. They're not meant to be shunned as somehow less than holy, like we don't do that now that Christ has come. They're meant to be emulated for the Christian, by the Christian. The prophet Isaiah says of Christ himself, he was a, quote, man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53.3. The author of Hebrews says Jesus, quote, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, Hebrews 5.7. So think, Gethsemane, where Christ cried out, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he didn't suffer these things so that we would feel like we couldn't grieve. He suffered these things so that when we do cry out to him in our grief, he can be a merciful and understanding Savior because he actually understands our pain. thought processes from Hebrews 2.17. And we see Paul, our great apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles in this text, just like Christ, crying out to God, if it's possible, let this thorn pass from me. So the Bible is not anti sorrow or anti-mourning, it's, it's very much in touch with reality, the reality that we find ourselves in. So I'd encourage you, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Question number two, what's the meaning of Christ's answer to Paul's prayers for relief from the thorn? It's in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Or you might say it this way, I think it's more easily understood like this, my grace is 
everything that you need because my power is accomplished through your weaknesses. My grace is everything that you need because my power is accomplished through your weaknesses. Weaknesses like through the thorn or through insults or hardships or persecutions or calamities or you fill in the blank. So what I want to do here, I want to first look at the two primary words in the statement, the grace and the power. My grace is everything you need. My power is being accomplished. We'll look at that briefly, and then I want to see how this actually plays out in the text that we just read. So my grace is everything that you need. Sometimes when grace is mentioned, it has a very narrow and specific thing that it's referring to. And then other times, it's meant to be far more broad and encompassing than that. And I think that's how it's being used here, the second one. I think it's referring to the the broad, wise, loving reign of Christ over every detail of our lives for our good. It's his, it's his thoughtful oversight over the events of our lives so as to not allow anything into our lives that would be eternally destructive, even if we don't understand how they could be eternally destructive, and to allow things into our lives that are good, even if we don't understand how they could possibly be good for us when they come. So I'm thinking about the grace in Romans 8, 28 and 29. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes, it's Christians, all things, all things work together for good. Things that we perceive to be good for us or not, things that are pleasurable to us or not. All things work together for good. And this is because, quote, We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So this grace, as we'll see, is is God's reign over Paul's life and our lives such that we are guaranteed to be conformed to the image of Christ at all costs for our good because he loves us and he's predestined us to this. I think that's the grace that he's talking about here. And for obvious reasons, it is sufficient for us, that kind of grace. It's absolutely everything that we would would need. So what's the power? I think the power is that same grace, but in action in Paul's life. It's the same grace in action in our lives. For Paul... In this verse, this power has at least two main ways that it's operating. It's the presence of God working powerfully, even miraculously, in his life to validate his ministry. And secondly, it's the power of God working in Paul to establish Christ-like character. And, And that's the main application for us, the second one. So how does this play out in the text? Paul has graciously been given amazing visions and revelations 
And the unavoidable danger of those experiences, according to the text, is pride or conceit. The kind of pride that destroys Christians and destroys Christian ministries. So, just by virtue of having these revelations, Paul is now in need of saving, and he doesn't even know it yet. So God, with the revelations, also gives him a thorn that will, quote, keep him from becoming conceited. He says that twice in verse 7. To keep me, it was given to keep me to becoming conceited. So God, working through the weakness produced by this thorn, kept Paul from deadly pride and in doing that, produced the opposite of pride in Paul, namely, humility. So Paul, my grace is everything you need because my power is being accomplished through this weakness. Now let's be clear here with a little bit of a side note. I think this is really important to say. I am not, Paul is not, the Bible does not, call evil good. This is still a demonic thorn. He he specifically describes it as a messenger of Satan. It is inherently evil, and it should be hated as such in that way. But The point is, is that God uses that evil against itself. He uses that that very evil against itself and makes it serve good and holy purposes in his children. Such that it works in Paul to keep him from harm and to keep him from destruction. That's what the difference is here. And Paul's honesty about his initial cluelessness to to all of this should speak to us. Think about this. Paul didn't know it, but the thorn was for his good. He couldn't feel it at the time, even through prayer, but it was God loving him like a good father. He might have even felt abandoned by God in the moment, but he was squarely in the hand of God at that moment. And I just wonder, how often might this be true of us? Is it possible that our struggles and our hardships that seemingly come out of nowhere, as evil as they may be, could actually be used by God as a type of grace to us. And, and I, feel, I feel how crazy that sounds even as I say it because of how excruciating life can be and how extreme situations can become and how much evil actually exists in the world. So I get it. But it was true for Paul. And could this maybe be true for you and I? that even right now, in whatever we might be suffering through, are you at least open to the possibility that God is still loving you? 
even though it hurts. Question number three. Why does Paul respond the way that he does to this? There's at least two answers to the question. One's more of a a surface-level answer, like on the face of the text, surface-level. And the other one, I think it's more to the core of things. The the more surface-level answer first. Paul says, I am well-pleased with weaknesses. And why? Why, Paul? It's the very end of verse 10. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. That's why he responded the way that he did. Because he understood that one of the costs to having the power of Christ in his ministry, the character of Christ completely formed in his heart, is the experience of weaknesses through which those things come. So he knows now that when he's weak from those experiences, he's actually strong from the power of God working in him. That's the more surface reason for why Paul responds the way that he does. But what's curious about this is the fact that we can hear, I can hear the same words of Christ, and we can probably not be completely on board with Paul and saying, well, I'm well pleased with suffering now. And that, that's part, I think, of what points to the fact that there's something deeper going on here in Paul's heart that might not be happening in our hearts. And that's really the point behind the third question. Why does Paul respond the way that he does? What's, what's underneath this? And, and there's, a, there's a tension in this answer. And it's a tension that's really easy to unbalance. We said earlier that Paul is not saying no to sorrow and mourning amidst hardships, and he's not, but he is, in this passage, giving reason for joy. That's that's a tension. He has joy in in suffering, so suffering is there, the pain is there, but so is the joy. And so Christians live in this this odd, perhaps paradoxical tension of what Paul describes elsewhere as being, quote, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's it's both. It's a strange mixture. And it's it's easily unbalanced. If, If we focus too much on the joy, which is the tendency of some, it becomes unrealistic becomes unattainable, like pie-in-the-sky thinking that's disconnected from reality. But then if we focus too much on the sorrow, well, then we betray the fact that we actually do have a genuine joy in Christ offered to us that surpasses all understanding. And so we have to – and the tension might seem strange to some, but it's not – illogical to wind up here. It actually makes a lot of sense why we wind up like this. An unbeliever has no hope but this world. This short, fleeting life 
And when hardships and calamities come upon them and ruin their one-shot experience in their minds of this world, they logically become things like excessively depressed or bitter or resentful or angry or jealous or maybe they even seek revenge. And when nothing changes still, sometimes they seek temporary happiness through various experiences and addiction-forming habits, anything to numb the pain. And, and as, as heartbreaking as it is to experience this or to watch someone that you love experience this, it is in some ways, it's the logical path. Because the unbeliever doesn't have hope beyond this life. But the believer does. The believer does have such a hope. So it would actually be illogical to go that route for the Christian. Paul words it this way to the Thessalonians. Amidst their loss, he says he wants them to feel free to grieve, but not, quote, as others do who have no hope. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Grieve, but grieve differently. Grieve hopefully. Feel the sorrow, but rejoice in the sorrow. So just as a parenthesis here, if you're a Christian, don't give in to grieving like the world griefs. Don't turn to bitterness or depression. Don't turn to anger or jealousy. Don't give in to seeking for empty, momentary pleasures to fill the void that you might be feeling. You have a hope. Grieve, yes. But grieve is one who has a hope. And so this, this is a logical tension that we find ourselves in. And at the risk of unbalancing this, I'm going to lean on the rejoicing side for a moment because I have to address why Paul says he's well pleased in suffering and why we might not be as much. I think the answer is that Paul had a greater, clearer, truer vision of Christ than we do. I mean, we all see, like, through a glass dimly, but I think Paul had a more vivid image of Christ and of eternal things. And I mean, on one level, of course he did. I mean, he's seen the risen Christ on multiple occasions. He's actually been to heaven, according to our passage. And this vision of Christ, it changed him. What's the famous words of Paul? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. All he wanted was to know Jesus, to be like him, to honor him, to share him with the world, to win him on the last day and to spend eternity with him. And nothing else in this world compared to that for Paul. So when Christ comes to him and says, those things are going to be accomplished through weaknesses, Paul's response is, bring on the weaknesses. 
I'm ready. If it gets me Christ, which is all that I want, then let's do it. I'll suffer the pain for that. So perhaps these words of Christ that his power is perfected in us through weakness, perhaps they don't have the same effect on us as they did Paul because we don't have a clear enough vision of Christ. It gets muddied and it gets blurry and it gets difficult to see him amidst the trials of life. It does, especially if you're not looking especially if you're not diligently looking for him. And so when Christ tells us that a particular painful thorn in our life is in some way, in some sense, maybe protecting us or perfecting us in order that we might gain him, while there is comfort in it and while there is perhaps a level of joy that we feel in it, it may not be enough to get us to where Paul is exactly. So let me sum this up with what we've seen so far. Question one, we saw an apostle brought low by a demonic thorn, hurting and confused as to why it was there and begging God to take it away. Then question two, we saw that Christ's words meant that he was actually loving Paul, using even what was painful for Paul for his good, and that he does that in our lives too. And then question three, I said that Paul responded the way that he did, finding joy in the meaning and value of the thorn because he has a superior vision of Christ. And that that's what we need too. So let me close like this. I said at the very beginning that there are no commands, no imperatives, no added burdens in this text whatsoever. And that this text, and therefore this sermon, was going to be an invitation of sorts. And I'm going to be faithful to that. So I want to end by inviting you then to a greater vision of Christ. Because in his grace, he has made himself visible to you and to me. He's all around us, all around us. And I want to invite you to see him. Now there's a Bible verse for every one of these examples that I'm about to say. He's in this book the Bible. He's making himself visible to you in every narrative, every poem, every proverb, every parable, every teaching. He's making himself visible right here as the Word of God for you. Will you see him? If you look around you right now in this room, at the gathering of the saints and all the graces that we have in prayer and worship and fellowship, he's made himself visible to you through the image of his body, the church of which he's the head. Will you see him? 
And when we take communion in a moment and the bread and the wine is distributed, he's making himself visible to you as the sacrifice for our sins, the spotless Lamb of God broken and poured out for us. Will you see him there? When you walk out the doors after service and and the sun warms your face, he's making himself visible to you as an image of the light of the world in this present age, will you see him? When you walk by the flower beds out front, he's making himself visible to you through the image of death and resurrection. The seed that goes into the earth dies and is raised into something far more beautiful than before. Will you see him there? When you pass the trees on the way to your car, he's making himself visible to you, even there as the one that grafted you into the family tree of God and the one who will one day allow you to eat from the tree of life. Will you see him there? When you talk to your children about children's church, he's making himself visible to you there as the pure, only begotten child of God. Will you see him there? When you look at your spouse, he's making himself visible to you in the image of marriage. Him, the bridegroom, and us, the church, his bride. Will you see him? When you eat lunch in a little while, he's making himself visible to you as the bread of life, the all-satisfying bread of life. Will you see him when you eat lunch today? When the sun goes down later and the stars start to shine in the sky, he's making himself visible to you. As the heavens proclaim the vastness and the beauty and the power of his glory. Will you see him? When there's need to to turn on the lights in your house later, he's making himself visible to you. He's the one who will one day do away with night. In all its violence, all its suffering, and will light his kingdom with the light of his own glory forever. Will you see him there? When you sit at dinner tonight with those that you love, those that you love for a meal tonight, he's making himself visible to you in the image of the marriage supper of the Lamb when you will feast with all of the beloved saints and Christ himself. Will you see him there? When you say your prayers and cry out to him later this evening before bed, he's making himself visible to you as the good high priest who hears you and is interceding to the Father on your behalf. Will you see him there? And even when you lay down to go to sleep, exhausted from another day, he's making himself visible to you. And the image of the ultimate rest to come, the final Sabbath where we will enjoy eternal rest from our struggles and our pains in this life. Will you see him there? He's all around you. Every moment of every day, will you see him? And in seeing him, find a good and gracious Savior who wisely reigns over everything in your life for your good Even over your suffering, even there, there's joy to be found because even there, he's made himself visible to you. Will you see him? Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for who you are and for all that you are for us in Christ. I ask that you will help us to see him more. Help us to know him and experience him more so that maybe we, like Paul, can have joy even in our suffering. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.